There are three big problems with used vehicle appraisals. One, manually sifting through comp vehicles. Two, old book values and ghost comps. Three, no recon visibility. You can solve them all with AutoVision. Now available from Reynolds & Reynolds. Learn more at reyrey.com slash used cars. That's R-E-Y, R-E-Y dot com slash used dash cars. Want to dive deeper into the topics you hear about on Daily Drive? We're offering listeners a special offer, 20% off a one-year automotive news digital subscription. That gets you access to all of our news, information, and analysis made for automotive industry leaders like you. Go to autonews.com slash daily drive promo to redeem. Welcome to this weekend drive edition of Daily Drive for the second week in February 2024. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Kellen Walker in Las Vegas. Today, we're breaking down some of the biggest stories in the auto industry from the past week and looking forward to what's in store in days ahead. In a few minutes, our own Hans Greimel joins us from Tokyo to talk about how Japanese automakers fared in the latest earnings results. Toyota is going gangbusters with earnings, sales, and stock price. But first, Jamie, welcome to Saturday. How are you? Hey, I'm doing all right. Starting to feel better. Awesome. Well, we got a lot of earnings numbers this week. Uh, two that stood out to me were from Penske Automotive Group and Asbury. Now, Penske's earnings fell by a third in the fourth quarter, and Asbury's net income fell 84% year over year. We keep seeing this one after another, these automotive groups reporting shrinking profits. What is the foreseeable future for automotive groups? Yeah, I mean, with the used-only retailers, we saw a lot of damage. We saw a lot of losses. Two public companies and several private companies have gone by the wayside. Carvana looks like the lone survivor there, at least for now. Uh, with the public, you know, auto dealer groups, you know, the headline numbers look bad because they're down so much. But I always point out, like, it's better to make money than lose money. And they are still profitable. You know, Asbury's earnings might have been higher if they didn't have a one-time charge. The reality is they're facing challenges, right? At least compared to the previous couple of years. You know, profits were just sky high per vehicle, you know, new, used, everything was was cruising along. And now, you know, profits are coming back. They're starting to carry inventory. They have to pay interest on that inventory. They're competing with more dealers down the road. Consumers are less bullish because they're facing higher interest rates. So definitely a lot of challenges, but you know, the companies are still profitable. The big public retailers are still profitable. They're still growing. They're just having to manage through it. So for the big public guys, Jamie, it's more, they're kind of coming back to like a normal. Coming back to guess, reality. Absolutely. Gotcha. Oh, also, Jamie, the UAW, ready for this, said this week that it has signed up the majority of employees at Volkswagen Group's Tennessee plant. Now, they also previously announced signing up more than 30% of the employees at Mercedes-Benz and Hyundai facilities in Alabama. It's safe to say the UAW was growing, and it looks like it's happening pretty quick. We saw huge contracts get put in place with the Detroit 3 last year, and it's great to see people wanting and getting their fair share and being properly compensated. 
But what position does this put the automakers in? Let's say if the UAW, this is hypothetical now, Jamie, is successful of organizing all 13 of their non-union targets. It seems like that would get very, very expensive. (laughs) It could get expensive for the, the companies that get organized. You know, it's funny, the UAW's had so much momentum, but at least in automaking, uh, but they've kind of struggled with overall membership. Uh, you know, they also represent student teachers and you know casino workers and a lot of other people in a lot of other industries. But the heart of the union is still automaking. They've never yet organized one of these foreign-owned plants, or now we have the new independent, uh, you know, new startup EV companies like Tesla and Rivian. It's always been a tough sell. This Volkswagen plant in Tennessee, they got really close last time. They now have, you know, more than 50% of the workers, they say, you know, signed up saying they want the union to represent them. If they get to 70%, they're going to take that to VW and say, this is an overwhelming majority. You should just acknowledge us, recognize us as a union, let them start paying dues and let us organize. That's probably not going to happen, although I don't think we've heard from Volkswagen that specifically they will insist upon an election. That's usually what would happen. Even with a lot of workers signing cards saying they want to join, it doesn't mean they really will vote to do so. Some of them might just be trying to force a vote so they can get a raise to try to keep the union out. So we'll see how it plays. If the UAW does organize these other companies, it could be a real boon for Detroit. It's something that's always held them back. You know, the cost of labor, the amount of labor that goes into a car is maybe only 30 hours now. But if their workers are getting 20, 25% more than the competition, that's several hundred dollars and that adds up. And as we get into this more competitive, smaller margin, you know, phase of the industry, even five hundred or a thousand dollars in extra labor costs can make a big difference in your profitability or in your ability to offer incentives and keep sales rolling. So it'll be very interesting to watch something every company is going to be watching for whichever their rooting interest is. Let's say, Jamie, it happens and you know, these non-union automakers now have the UAW present in their facilities. Do we start seeing job cuts possibly if, you know, the automakers can't afford it? Do we see jobs go elsewhere? There is potential. You know, it's hard to say until you see the actual results. You know, what kind of contract do they get? Uh, How problematic is it? Maybe while the industry is doing well, nothing changes. But when times get tougher, yeah, it could come down to a choice between a, a UAW organized plant in the U.S. or keeping one open in Mexico where labor is cheaper. Companies have to balance these things all the time. Let's not forget, you know, the Japanese, the Koreans and the Germans and I guess Volvo, too. They all have unions at home. They have unions in in Asia. They have unions in Europe. Uh, They come to the U.S. and they operate without a union Uh, for Tesla and Rivian. This could be a whole different world for them. So lots to watch. Gotcha. Now. Back to earnings. Uh, Most of the Japanese automakers did really, really well when it came to earnings numbers this week. What are they doing right and what can their American counterparts learn from their successes? 
you know, a lot of it, I think, kind of like with the big public groups is the, the comparison to a year earlier. Toyota and Honda in particular really were hamstrung by the chip shortage. Uh, they couldn't make as many vehicles as they wanted to. Uh, and they recovered more slowly than GM, Ford, and most of the rest of the big players around the world. So now they're getting their groove back. They're getting their production going and really making some gains. Nissan had some headwinds. I, I talked about this in greater detail with uh, Hans Greimel. We'll hear that in the second half of the show. But I think what you're getting at is, I mean, it's kind of irresistible that these companies were all you know, a little more cautious in their EV strategy. Even Nissan, which was an EV pioneer with the Leaf and now has uh, the Aria out. It's really just those two models. They weren't counting on fast, big growth of EV sales in the U.S. And now that we're seeing growth a little tempered, especially while the charging network isn't all ready and the vehicles are still pretty expensive, you know, they have more options. They have more sedans, they have more hybrids, more affordable vehicles, and that's uh, really helping them right now. Well, with that said, we'll get in a little more detail coming up with Automotive News Asia editor Hans Grimel. He joins the show to talk about the latest earnings results and Toyota's electrification strategy now that EV growth is slowing a bit. That's next on Weekend Drive. Data is the backbone of your used vehicle department. You need it to find accurate comp sets and to best understand your market in order to make precise appraisal and pricing decisions. But it feels like you're always struggling to get the information you need. How much time do you spend sifting through comps because there are outliers that don't match the vehicle you're appraising. Do you frequently make manual adjustments to pricing recommendations? Reynolds' newest inventory management solution, AutoVision, can help. AJ McGowan, president and founder of AutoVision, explains how. If you look at the way that cars are traditionally priced, you know, you can get down to specifics in terms of, you know, what zip code is it in and, you know, what options does it have on it, you know, some of those sorts of things. Um, but the thing that's never really taken into account um, is, you know, that dealer's, you know, specific view of the market. Our goal with AutoVision was to use, you know, technology that's available now to do real-time processing, which allows dealers to really set the their view of the market into AutoVision. And then we use our tools to analyze the data that's there and show them this is what this vehicle is worth to you. AutoVision can help you run your used vehicle department with precise comp sets, real-time inventory data, and reconditioning insights. Visit reyrey.com slash used dash cars to find out more. That's reyrey.com slash used dash cars. Welcome back to Weekend Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. As we mentioned earlier, Japanese automakers not named Nissan had a pretty great round of earnings results. And Toyota is especially getting attention for the successes it's seeing with its hybrids as EV growth slows here in the U.S. Hans Greimel is our Asia editor at Automotive News. He joins me now from Tokyo to talk about all of it. Hans Greimel, welcome to the Weekend Drive. Thanks, Jamie. Great to be here. Weeks like this, I, I really feel for you. There's just so much earnings news. Toyota, Honda, Nissan, Subaru, Mazda, all reporting fiscal third quarter results this past week. Let's start with the big dog, Toyota. You know, epic calendar year, ending with a 76% jump in operating profit for the October to December quarter. 
and it became the first Japanese company to have a stock market valuation of more than 50 trillion yen, about 355 billion U.S. dollars. Is that something that made waves in Japan? Did people pay attention to that? Right. That's, I mean, that's kind of a uh, arbitrary mark, but 50 trillion yen is a lot of money. I mean, uh, it equates to about, what, 300 billion some odd dollars, depending on the exchange rate. That is the first time that a Japanese company has ever uh, eclipsed that that level. So it was a kind of a uh, a big moment here in Japan. It got a lot of attention in the media. Of course, that's uh, f- you know still far below uh, Tesla, which is around the five hundred billion level. And of course, on Wall Street, you know there's a, a one trillion dollar club. So that that's a completely different league in its own right. But still, I mean, Toyota is going gangbusters here with earnings, sales, and stock price. From a U.S. perspective, GM and Ford are not what they used to be. You know, Alphabet, formerly Google, and Facebook and the like, you know, Amazon have become such tight. And it's, it's almost strange to see a car company as the, <laughs> the most valuable company in a country uh, instead of a tech company anymore. Uh, that's true. I mean, I mean, Japan isn't like known for a, a global tech giants anyhow. So, I mean, it, w- when you think about Japan, the auto industry is the backbone of the economy here. And it's not an exaggeration to say that probably Toyota is the most important company in the whole country. Full calendar year 2023 output of 11 and a half million vehicles, including Hino trucks and Daihatsu mini cars, more than 10 million just for Toyota and Lexus brands. Is that sustainable? Well, that was a interesting point uh, because they they talked about that in the uh, earnings uh, report. The CFO Miyazaki-san came out and said, "You know what? We're we feel like we've been running a, a sprint basically for the past year, sprinting to these record outputs, record uh, sales, and it's time to take a breather, reassess." And he called it shifting into marathon modes for a long run, basically. They feel as if they're overheated, they're overworked, and they're overstretched. And they want to, and this is a classic theme of Toyota, they want to shift into something that's more sustainable long term. So they're going to try to review all their their work processes, not just in manufacturing, but across the entire company. And uh, that's the, the order of business this coming fiscal year. And try to see uh, how fast can they run in the long term comfortably. And it might be a little bit lower in some markets or slower in some markets than others. They didn't come out with an actual target that they want to hit, but it probably will be a little bit lower or slower than what we have now. But the idea is to c- continue at that pace sustainably for the into the future. And there's there's wear and tear on workers and and workers at suppliers. You know if they're producing six days a week and not really getting you know working longer than eight hour days all the time. But Toyota and its affiliates, maybe more on the affiliate side, have also had some setbacks, some quality problems, or uh, some regulatory fudging of numbers. You know, uh, maybe not as as bad as some of the scandals we've seen at other companies that have pushed for real high growth, but kind of embarrassing. Uh, yes, you're right. And that was part of the reason behind this rethink, actually, because in recent years, as the whole Toyota group kind of stretched itself to ramp up production, especially in the wake of the pandemic and the chip shortage, when suddenly uh, supply was the key to uh, getting big sales growth, uh, they were basically a little bit overstretched. They had trouble keeping up with Toyota. 
the, you know, the group companies. Uh, Hino was tripped up in 2022 after fudging some admission certificates. And then Daihatsu had a problem uh, just last year and uh, found that it has been rigging its uh, side collision tests. And then another foot dropped uh, just last month when uh, Toyota had to sh uh, halt a bunch of shipments of uh, about 10 nameplates because the diesel engine supplied by another Toyota affiliate called Toyota Industries had actually undergone proper horsepower and torque testing. I mean, th these don't rise to the same level of the, the huge recall scandal that Toyota endured in like 2009, 2010, but it's uh, embarrassing that Toyota has to do this at all, especially after that uh, first recall crisis. So this is also causing a cause for pause and what they are keeping at the back of their mind as they, as they rethink their operations. On a more positive uh, note for Toyota, uh, you wrote a column about their much maligned powertrain strategy and how it's actually looking really smart now uh, after GM and Ford have dialed back some of their assessment of the short-term market. Right. I mean, Toyota's approach to the, the all along was uh, this multi-path approach to carbon neutrality. The, the idea that there's not just one killer app or silver bullet that will uh, get us to a cleaner future. Of course, they're famous for their hybrids and they're always pushing their hybrids. But what they really came under fire for in recent years was that they're kind of uh, foot dragging or critics would call it foot dragging on EVs. You know, they don't have really have a good stable uh, of EV offerings, their lineups pretty pretty small and limited. They weren't coming out with bold plans for new EVs, and then of course that the EVs that they already have were basically outdated and outclassed by uh, uh, most of the competition that was on the market. So they were really seen as kind of going backwards, insisting that internal combustion still had a future. Now, of course, they've upped their EV game and they see that as one of the legs of their strategy, a critical leg, and they have a, a um, new strategy actually to become more competitive in EVs. But at the same time, a lot of the, the early EV runners who got onto that bandwagon early and started shelling out billions for, you know, to target millions and millions of production capacity they're starting to rethink their own EV strategy. Maybe they're leaning too heavily into EVs. Uh, you know, we have dealers saying that the, the, the government's EV strategy is too aggressive. EV sales are starting to f actually fall in places like California. Yeah, sequentially. I mean, it's not yeah. a year on year. It's still, they're still up. But yes, third quarter yeah, was yeah. less than the second quarter. Well, yeah, that's, that's just a, that's a real outlier. That's that California case. But in general, that fast growth that we saw in the EVs is starting to taper and plateau a bit. So it's really kind of a stable, a stabilizing in a, in a, at a slower rate now. Uh, there are EV production cuts, job cuts. So the, the landscape for the EV optimists is becoming a little bit more difficult to navigate these days. Meanwhile, you know, investors are flock, well, not just investors, but Toyota, and Honda, the companies that have these these hybrids as a kind of a a bridge technology to the EV uh, era, are really racking up the profits because customers who are interested in a cleaner car or something that's electrified, and but can't afford an EV or are worried about things like charging, they're seeing these hybrids as how the Japanese are positioning them as a bridge technology. So they're flocking in, and Toyota in particular is having great success with its hybrids. 
that in turn is what's pumping up the helping pump up that 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 stock price that we talked about and investors are starting to finally buy into that strategy oh you mentioned uh toyota's sort of hybrid rival honda Wow, that company has really finally gotten its group back. Uh, they're buying chips, they're making cars, they're getting them to dealers who are turning them very quickly. Is inventory still a problem for Honda? It seems like it's been the one brand that has continued to have pent up demand. Uh, I think that they are running tight, that's for sure. Uh, it's a problem, um, but it's maybe taking a little bit of the edge off the, the earnings. Their earnings were up about uh, 35% or so in the quarter compared to, let's say, you know, 70 plus percent at Subaru and and the same at, at Toyota. But at the same time, I mean, I think that they are in a, in the midst of a difficult shift right now. They, of course, are trying to, to ramp up their hybrid output as the bridge. But at the same time, they're even more aggressive than many of the other Japanese rivals in terms of their EV strategy. So they've got a lot on their plate right now. I'm talking about Honda. And uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty delicate time for them, although they've got a good lineup that will transition them into that future. And then there's Nissan. Uh, picture there was a, a little less rosy. Didn't seem to suffer as long under the microchip shortage as Honda. And, it, and for this quarter, it still did manage to report a, a small profit increase. What's your sense? What's happening with, with Nissan? Well, Nissan is another brand that's, I guess there are two in, in Japan that are kind of struggling a little bit more than the rest here, and that would be Nissan and, and Mitsubishi. But Nissan had an opportunity here in the shifting market, and they weren't able to capitalize on it as fully as they, they wanted to. I guess that's the best way to put it. During the, the pandemic and the uh, semiconductor shortage, you know, Supply was really tight. The dealer's lots were empty. And that really played well into Nissan's revival strategy because they could keep incentives down and basically try to offer higher trim levels or kind of move the brand up market with better uh, upmarket cars. And now that the market is kind of shifting to reverse and the people are becoming more price conscious, uh, that's kind of undermining their quality sales strategy. People are going back and demanding a lot of those entry cars that, that used to be kind of the Nissan's go-to bread and butter. I'm talking things like the Sentra or the Versa. You know, the margins on those cars aren't so great. The image of those cars aren't so great, but that's what people want. And while Nissan was trying to move itself up market, it, it kind of uh, didn't have the, the supply of the, the, these lower end cars that people wanted. So it was hurt in that, in that regard, first off. And second of all, when the market's shifting to electrification and a lot of people find EVs prohibitive, uh, it didn't have an offering of any kind of hybrid, basically, as an alternative to that. So uh, especially in the U.S., Nissan has been basically has, has shunned some of its own technologies. And I'm talking about what they call the e-power series hybrid system that uh, Nissan has. It's a basically like a range extender. You have a, an engine that basically acts as a generator to make electricity, which powers the electric motor in the car. It's basically unknown in the United States because the uh, Nissan America doesn't, doesn't want it. It's a little bit underpowered for the U.S. market. But it's very popular in Japan, super popular in Japan, and very popular in, in uh, Europe, and it's going to be extended to other markets as well. So it didn't, wasn't able to capitalize on that e-power technology that it has in the U.S. market. 
and it only has two EVs there to boot, the kind of the long in the tooth uh, Nissan Leaf, and then the kind of high-end Nissan Aria crossover, which is also in limited supply. So uh, they were kind of caught between a rock and a hard place with not having the right cars at, at the right place in the right time. And uh, Nissan is Nissan's U.S. recovery is getting tripped up a little bit because of that. As our loyal listeners know, I was just out in Las Vegas for the NADA show and the Automotive News Retail Forum. I interviewed Judy Wheeler, a top sales executive for Nissan, and she said the company had faced a lot of problems getting those lower priced vehicles up from Mexico where they're made, the Versas, Sentras, and Kicks. Now that it actually got across the border between the rail car shortage and yeah. you know just the issues at the border, that's our majority of our less expensive, mm -hmm. lower end vehicles are built in Mexico. They are now here. So that's what kind of drove our day supply up is we were, they kind of got stuck. Right. And so now they're finally coming across the border. So we look high right now, but the dealers are really excited to see the versus the centers, the kicks. Those are all great products. We finally broke that log jam. And um, so I think that probably was part of their optimism that they can really gain a lot of share in the U.S. this year. They're aiming for 6.1% retail share just for the Nissan brand, up from 4.8% last year. So really significant, like 25% growth in a growing market. <laughs> so, but I guess my, my question for you is, you know, weren't ambitious share goals part of Nissan's problem under their former leader, Carlos Ghosn? You're right. That was uh, this this idea of, of aiming for the stars and and uh, <laughs> was probably what got them into trouble. However, I'm not sure that really uh, they're they're what we call them overextending themselves right now. They're really, <laughs> they're really just kind of, you know, it used to be a five globally. It used to be like a five million company a 5 million unit company, 5 million vehicles a year. Then uh, for this fiscal year, they were hoped to have targeted 4 million. So it was already down right away. And then most recently, they cut the sales target again for the full year. And now it's, I think, at 3.55 3 million cars. So you're talking a, a big drop down from where they used to be. Volume, I think they're not chasing volume like they used to under Gone. So that's that's true. And that's probably helping them, but they got to aim somewhere. Otherwise, they won't advance at all. But you're right. Uh, that optimism is fueled by uh, the fact that they think that they've broken that log jam of supply to get more cars from Mexico. So they're optimistic about the, the uh, January to March quarter, and that should probably hope, help right the ship a bit. Hans Greimel, Asia editor for Automotive News. Thanks so much for joining me on Weekend Drive. Anytime, Jamie. Thanks. That's all for this Weekend Drive edition of Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer Jake Neer for his help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on earnings results, UAW organizing efforts, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back on Monday for a look at auto ads in this weekend's Super Bowl. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.